If you're a person of a certain age and you're Instagram savvy, you'll know what the wing was. You'll remember the cocktail of perfect pinks of its members' clubs. And you'll think back to that heavily promoted line that this was a space designed and run by women only. And you'll remember scrolling, probably through 2018 and 19, through pictures of wing women, as they were called. Influencers, celebrities, writers, politicians having meetings and coffees and posting selfies of themselves in meeting rooms named after other famous women. Rooms called Anita Hill, Lisa Simpson, Hermione Granger. Women, characters who were famous before Instagram, but have found new fans in the age of the timeline and the inspirational quote. And if you're anything like me, you might remember having a pang of envy thinking maybe a little grudgingly, man, this marketing really works. A space committed to women, to female empowerment, sign me up. If only you had about £2,000 a year spare, you could be in. I'm Basha Cummings and you're listening to The Slow Newscast, the podcast where we tell one story that matters each week, in depth and behind the headlines. This week, we're telling the story of The Wing a feminist utopia that took the form of a members club, which had an astonishing rise, transforming from an exclusive club to a mission and a movement. But then, like many things that are built on Instagram, it turns out it was a facade in more ways than one. In the last few months, we've seen the crumbling of a feminist business empire play out on the very social platform that built it. But this isn't just the story of a fancy members club and where it went wrong, though that is a good one. The facade means something. It tells us something about how the intoxicating cocktail of corporate feminism and social media can become a unique kind of poison. And it tells us about a very public reckoning that happened this summer. And it is, of course, also the story of how women rise and how they fall. Slow News is a podcast made by us here at Tortoise. We're a news publisher, in an app, online, in our daily Sensemaker email and, as you already know, in podcasts. What's different about us is that we investigate what's driving the news and we'd love you to join us. By becoming a member of our newsroom, you'll get access to our journalism and you can join our open news meetings and help decide what matters in the world and how we should report it. To get access to all of Tortoise, all you have to do is download the Tortoise app, now available in the iOS or Google Play Store, and take a free trial. Our story starts in New York City and with a young woman called Audrey Gelman. Audrey is a born and raised New Yorker and Manhattan girl, the daughter of a microbiologist and a psychologist, and she's friends with a particular New York set. And she's really, really into politics. In 2008, she works as a press aide on Hillary Clinton's first unsuccessful campaign for the presidency. We must make sure that women and men alike understand the struggles of their grandmothers and their mothers, and that women enjoy equal opportunities, equal pay, and equal respect. 
On her Instagram account, Audrey posts pictures with Bill Clinton or old pictures of Hillary looking fabulous in the 80s and 90s. Already in her early 20s, this was a young woman building an impressive brand with one foot in the world of fashion and one in the world of political power. In 2013, she was New York City's youngest press secretary, working on Scott Stringer's campaign to be New York City's controller. You come here because you believe in our city. You believe in our activism. You believe in our progressive agenda. We are going to continue that working together every single day. We are going to continue to fight for the people we care about. She became a bit of a thing. In a profile of her in the New York Times, she was described as a 26-year-old political ingenue. It helped, of course, that one of her best friends had just become the celebrated, messy truth-teller of a generation. Lena Dunham, just a year before, had written and launched Girls on HBO, which was described as the sex in the city for the hapless, penniless, self-obsessed generation. And Marnie, one of its protagonists, was modelled on Audrey. That isn't fun for me. Do you realise that? Being the uptight girl? I hate it. Audrey even had a cameo appearance. The apartment is like 10 feet across. I think I'll be okay. You you remember Marnie, right? Yeah. Hi. Hey, Audrey. Do you know if there's any pot at this party? This was a moment when the term millennial was crystallizing, when what it meant to be a millennial woman was taking shape. And arguably, Audrey was a blueprint. She was ambitious, charming, smart. She shared, like so many others, carefully curated slices of her life on Instagram. And looking back on those early posts, she comes across as a wry but earnest operator. She likes Slayer and Larry David. And she has a tattoo inside her lip with the words, Let's Go Mets, in capital letters. She was on the rise. And then... In 2016, the year that changed so much, after years of building a name and a reputation, Audrey Gelman launched something called The Wing. This was to be a woman's only space, a place to shower and change between work and whatever glamorous evening event you might have on, where a professional New York woman could privately transform. And in that early pitch, this was a luxury service, something you could only afford and would only need if you were living a certain kind of life. Audrey Gelman's life, in fact. It was originally going to be called Refresh, and membership wasn't cheap. It cost between $215 and $250 a month. But soon it morphed. The company introduced a scholarship system for those who couldn't afford it. It was immediately being marketed as much more than just a space to change, in both senses of the word. This was to be a feminist utopia, uplifting women who worked women on their way, as the tagline went. Audrey declined to speak to us for this podcast, but here she is in 2018. You know, we get a lot of questions about what the wing is. And, you know, the wing is is used as a co-working space during the day. So if you you walk in um, on any weekday afternoon, you can find hundreds of women on their laptops working on, you know, projects, their new companies, their next, you know, freelance writing assignment. Um, and at night, it becomes more of a community space. And as a person that, you know, took gender studies and women's history classes in college, I was really surprised to learn that there are actually five 5,000 physical women's clubs that existed in the U.S. between around the um, years between 1890 and the 1920s. Um, And then they sort of went out of fashion with, you Mm. know, 
third wave feminism. And what we realized was that we were actually resurrecting that concept for contemporary women. The Wings founders knew how to dress this mission up and how to sell it. The spaces lived as much on the company's Instagram account as they did in reality, post after post showcasing these palaces of plush velvet and gold and marble and all the right pinks. And the power of the Wings message was so closely tied to the political moment. This was the year that Hillary Clinton failed to break the glass ceiling, the year Trump, the pussy-grabbing candidate, one. I've just received a call from Secretary Clinton. The year women started knitting pink pussy hats. However the wing had been conceived, the mood across America very quickly changed in the autumn of 2016. And the value of a space like the wing took on new meaning. There have been moments, I think the Women's March was a big moment. I think for, for us as, as a company and, and watching how we could serve as sort of a, a, a gathering space for women, we you know had 200 women get on buses at 3 a.m. and we got to a, um, it was in Delaware and it was like a rest stop and it was incredible because this rest stop that I think I'd been to before in Delaware almost transformed into a wing. There were, the men's bathroom had been taken over <laughs> there by were. all women. The mission was becoming more and more central to Audrey Gelman business plan. And she had attracted huge investment from other impressive women, the co-founders of the spinning studio SoulCycle, the founder of the beauty delivery service Birchbox, later some of the founders of the Time's Up movement, which had risen up in response to the Harvey Weinstein scandal, came on as investors too. In that sort of process, I guess, of, of you know, Going, like researching the idea, finding her partner in the form of Lauren Kassan, you know, going to talk to investors, th- this sort of bigger idea grew uh, um, out of that original quite sort of practical, almost quite small luxury idea than this idea of a kind of mission and a sort of social mission and a movement and the idea of a, a place that was more than just a kind of a nice building. This is Sophie Elmhurst, an award-winning British feature writer who has spent months interviewing people at The Wing from its once glittering HQ to its front of house staff. And this podcast is built on the reporting that she has done to understand what happened there and why it matters. I think, and I, I think the wing wouldn't have ironically had any of the, the problems it ended up having if it had sort of stuck to a sort of shamelessly exclusive model that it kind of started off as being. And But its mission was entirely well-meaning and, and genuine. I think in, in its first instance, it was supposed to be a, a club for all women, for anyone who identified as a woman and non-binary. And it was, uh, you know, much, much bigger than the sum of its parts. And, you know, on a sort of abstract level, rather than just a practical level, it wasn't just a place where you would hang out and have coffee and talk. It was a place where sort of, you know, big ideas and a kind of total community for women would, and safe space for women would, would be found. The launch was an unmitigated success. In an article on the opening of the first space in Manhattan, the Cut magazine wrote... At the end of the evening, after several members had changed into white monogram pyjamas for the sleepover portion of the proceedings, one woman wondered aloud why exactly the party had felt so easy and fun. I think it was because there were no men here, she said. 
I had experience working um, in a co-working space. Um, I found the environment to be pretty male-dominated. Um, there were things like pumps for beer, but not for breast milk. The things that we've thought about here at The Wing. We have um, a pump room for moms to use. Um, we have a beauty room that has a ton of different products. You know, the, the feeling of having a library in some ways um, reminds women a lot of you know, of, uh, sort of a women's college environment. That can be a place uh, that is really welcoming and also allows women to get a lot done. For many women who became members, there was a real power in being in a female-only space. And I interviewed a founder of a, a tampon company called Tara Chandra, and both she and her co-founder are women of colour, and she described to me like going from working in a WeWork somewhere around the corner in central London to going to work in the wing, and she was like... The relief was just palpable. She felt comfortable, she felt at ease, she felt like it was sort of her kind of place that no one, she wasn't gonna be hit on, she wasn't gonna have to have sort of exhausting conversations about what she was wearing, unless someone, another woman in the space was sort of happened to be complimenting her on what she was wearing. It was just a completely different kind of, and creative and friendly atmosphere. I think for lots of people, it was genuinely a, a, a welcoming and, and quite revolutionary space to, to be in. But there was something else in the power of the wing. It also traded in the kind of envy that sororities so brilliantly harness. It made you want to aspire, to be better, to join in, and more than anything, to be the kind of woman who feels at ease in a place like that. My first encounter with it was it was walking through the door in New York, and it's was just, I don't know, it was like something out of a, a, a dream, really, but I, I don't know if you can imagine a kind of like an interiors shoot for a magazine where everything is sort of so perfectly constructed to look like an ideal version of itself that it no longer feels like it has any kind of place in sort of reality. And even everyone who was in there, everyone's on their laptop, every, you just sort of, it immediately basically induced some sort of like low level anxiety in me where you just sort of imagine that everyone was sort of working more ambitiously and more efficiently than you were. Of course, it didn't stop there. Soon came the merch. And oh, was there merch. Key rings with girls doing whatever the fuck they want in 2019 emblazoned across them. Lighters with the words, light like a girl. And socks with the slogan, in sisters we trust. Yeah. Within two years, Audrey Gelman and her business partner, Lauren Cassan, were raising millions for their mission. And I think this is one of Audrey Gelman's, like, again, huge skills that she was able to go out and, as she would put it, I think, probably hustle, you know, and she was very adept at that. She, they had sort of ultimately, well, they had two seed rounds and then three further rounds in 2017, 2018. And you really saw the kind of level of investment just, you know, exponentially increase. Um, she always had interesting people and other founders of other businesses involved in investing and and, you know, people like Serena Williams or Kerry Washington, you know, individuals who were investing as well. They really hit the big time. Sequoia Capital, one of the biggest and most revered Silicon Valley funds, which had previously given money to Apple and Google, Instagram and WhatsApp, came on board. One of their investors wrote on Twitter at the time, The Wing is more than a company. It's a phenomenon. And at that time, you could believe it. They had more than 5,000 members. The term, I believe, is blitzscaling. They were growing big and quick, high on the venture capital cash that they had pouring in. The mission, it turned out, was a lucrative one. But in attracting so much attention, things were starting to change for Audrey and her business partner. 
Audrey's friend, Sharmadine Reed, the founder of a beauty platform called Beauty Stack, put it like this. They give you this plane, but with no flying lessons. And I spoke to people in the whole kind of venture capital world about this, but once you're in this league especially, the ambitions are, 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 are very clear and are significant. You know, they want expansion and rapid expansion and on a fairly kind of epic scale. And this idea that really venture capital was sort of almost set up <laughs> into or works best in a kind of software environment. You know, that's one thing if you're doing like a, a, a WhatsApp, say, or like Airbnb, where it's something which is scalable in a huge global way very, very quickly with actually not huge sort of numbers of people necessarily involved to get to sort of a, a kind of epic scale. When you're talking about hospitality or real estate, you know, all the things that the wing was, which is actually buildings and people and frontline employees on a low wage, scaling that is a very different proposition. You're talking about opening lots more buildings, employing lots more people at a very low wage. And the kind of risks and complexities involved in that are of entirely different order. Audrey Gelman was on top of the world. She was appearing on the covers of magazines, in the pages of Vogue, on popular podcasts. She was, throughout 2018 and 2019, seemingly everywhere. Chances are, if you don't know Audrey Gelman, the millennials in your life probably do. An antidote to the bro culture of traditional co-working spaces. We have Christiane Amanpour coming to speak this week. Hillary Clinton is coming to speak next week. Dianne Feinstein. So, you know, leading voices in the women's... Um, Thousands are now on the waiting list to join the wing. And Gelman raised $32 million in her second round of investment funding. One of the biggest hauls ever for a female-led company. A lot of people walk into the wing and they say, like, am I dreaming? <laughs> but the boom wasn't to last long. After all, there was, throughout all of this, a paradox at the heart of what the wing was telling the world that it was. This was a place for all women, it said, for female empowerment. But how could it be? This was, after all, an expensive club. Its very model was an exclusive one. It was, I don't know, almost like the Schrodinger's cat of a feminist proposition. I want to introduce you to a woman called Gina Martin. Gina is a campaigner. In 2017, as the wing was gaining huge traction in the US, Gina was facing a fight. That year, she began touring the newsrooms of the British media at the beginning of a very personal campaign. Now, they're known as upskirt photos or creep shots. It's where a man manages to use his mobile phone to take a picture between a woman's legs up her skirt without her permission. A sweltering summer's evening in London's Hyde Park, where last July thousands came together at the British Summertime Festival. Enjoying in the crowd was 26-year-old Gina Martin, but along with the good memories that she made that day came some bad ones too. Gina, at this point, was only 24 years old. She had been upskirted at a music festival. A stranger had taken an intimate picture of her. Here she is on one of the flagship breakfast programmes on British television. Good Morning Britain, in August 2017, explaining why she was campaigning for a change in the law. Yeah. What happened? Tell us exactly what happened. Um, so I was at British Summertime with my sister. I was very excited, um, seeing the killers. I've been waiting for about 10 years to see them. And there was a couple of guys 
next to us who have been generally pretty creepy the whole time, um, which is unfortunately what you get when you're out when you're a young woman a lot and you kind of brush it off because that's, you yeah. know, fine. Mm. That, that happens a lot and you kind of get on with it even though it's annoying. So I did that and then effectively they just carried on. They wouldn't stop. And then um, I was watching the stage and I saw at the corner of my eye one of them had a picture on his phone he'd been sent. And it was between my legs, really well taken shot. Put, someone put their hands between my legs and take a picture of my crotch. Mm. Um, and I knew it was me straight away. So I grabbed the phone off him. We got into a bit of a scuffle and I ran off with the phone. Um, some people around me in the crowd helped me. I got away from him, I got security, gave them the phone. And then the police were called. They came very quickly, they were wonderful, they were lovely. Really just supportive and wonderful, but they asked him to delete the image off his phone. And then they kind of said, you won't really hear much from us. And then my case was closed pretty quickly. Gina's fierce determination meant that in under two years, upskirting in the UK was made illegal. As a result of Gina's campaigning, the government today pledged to back a private member's bill which would create a specific offence of upskirting, with criminals facing a maximum penalty of two years in jail and being added to the Sex Offenders Register. The Voyeurism Offences Act came into force in April of 2019, Gina had changed the UK. She had ensured that what happened to her would never happen to another woman again without consequence. If anyone was the perfect encapsulation of what the wing should be all about and about the women that it should be uplifting, it was Gina. And so later in 2019, when the wing announced that it was coming to London to open a new venue, unsurprisingly, they approached Gina. In the beginning of 2019, I was approached by the Wing London to become a founding member. That was over email. They presented kind of what they their aims were and what they wanted to do. And I was quite curious about it because when I first moved to London, I lived in a storeroom of a pub for two years because I had nowhere to live. And the per- the man that I lived with who looked after us as like a guardian used to often, we'd often go to like, he was a businessman, he's a lovely man. And we often used to go to, me- to members clubs, but they were obviously very male dominated. And yeah. the handful of times I went to those, you know, being a working class, like I'm from Liverpool, I'm a work class family. I remember feeling really like, oh, this is so exciting. I'm in the big city. I'm in these clubs that no one goes into, blah, blah, blah. Completely ignorant. And before I'd ever started this work, really understanding what that meant. But I had a handful of experiences at those clubs that were very, very misogynistic and very, very uncomfortable and very intimidating. And I realised that those those clubs were kind of a breeding ground for powerful, unpleasant men. And so when I got this email about the wing, I thought, wow, what an amazing idea, this kind of space that is to support women, for women to network, for anyone who identifies as a woman it was inclusive in terms of non-binary people and I thought that'd be really cool so I said yeah of course I'll become a founding member very flattered and then I got offered to do a Vogue shoot for the founding members and the other people I was doing the Vogue shoot with were Atega Uagba, Sharmadine Reed. And I thought, wow, well if those women are doing it, because I'd really looked up to Ortega for a long time and Sharmadine and thought, wow, that's brilliant. For Gina, the mission of The Wing really worked. It made her feel exactly like Audrey, three years before, had hoped to make women feel, like there was a space just for her. But after that photo shoot for Vogue, advertising this brilliant young campaigner as a founding member of The London Wing, Gina didn't hear from them. I basically was asked to be in the shoot and then didn't receive any kind of emails or anything. And then literally like almost a year or like eight, nine months went by. It was probably the end of last year. And I walked past it on 
in central London where it was. And I went, oh my God, it's open. You know, I'm one of those people that if, okay, if you don't get in touch, fine, don't worry about it, I'm good. And I just walked past it and was like, oh, it's open. So I just went in and said, hi, I'm Gina. I was, I'm a, like, it was very odd because I was like, I'm a founding member, but I don't have membership and I would like to see what the club's about. And like, you know, I put my name to it. So I'd like to have something back from that and like, see what it's like. Gina went in and was told, of course, go in and work upstairs while we figure out what's going on with your membership. But somehow it didn't materialise. She went back three times, she says. Her emails were forwarded around, but no card ever arrived. Then there were other things that started to become apparent. She said that while they had made a big deal of this being a welcome space for the LGBT community... Gina felt that there was no one visibly from that community on their board or on their team. She also noticed that it all appeared very white. I just felt like the vibe of it was very, like, commercialised feminism. It feels very obviously like, this is, you know, the kind of get girl, have it all, blah, 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 vibe, which is absolutely fine, but that's just not my personal vibe. I feel like I just felt a bit uncomfortable there and I didn't really know why. In all the conversations that I had with Sophie about her reporting, this is the interview of hers that really stood out because it encapsulates so clearly, I think, the moment where that paradox at the heart of this business started to become apparent, the moment that the mission really diverged from reality. And to many of the staff who had been hired to work there, this divergence felt like a betrayal. After all, the Wings mission hadn't just been sold to eager investors and prospective members. It had been sold to its staff too. For some people, I think people kind of high up in in the kind of executive function, there was a sense of a loss of control once they started expanding. Um, You know, if they just kept it as that sort of first one or two spaces in New York, they could have retained a degree of kind of a sort of closeness to staff, a kind of sense of what was going on in the space, a kind of monitoring of how staff were being treated and how they felt... And that once it expanded, they kind of lost that oversight. If you talk to people at the other end, I, I, I you know, of, of all the people I spoke to, it was almost immediately, I suppose, in, in their experience of working at the wing with that kind of sense of dysfunction or, or discrepancy between what they'd been told working at the wing was going to be like and what it was actually like, it just became really obvious. I spoke to kitchen staff, front desk staff, and people sort of lower down the, the pecking order, but in, in the HQ, and they all sort of found within the first their first sort of weeks, I suppose, a sense that they'd been told that they were going to come into this very supportive environment where there was constant sort of opportunity for advancement, for sort of mentorship, for quickly kind of hopefully moving up the ladder, you know, that, that there was a sort of career opportunity, but also, you know, a sort of unique working environment that it wouldn't be like working anywhere else because you were coming to work in this sort of mission-based company. And... I, something that sticks in my head is one of the kitchen staff I spoke to, she worked in two different spaces. She wasn't willing to give me her real name, as, as many of them weren't, because a lot of them are still under quite strict non-disclosure agreements or non-disparagement clauses. You know, she, for example, had asked for there to be like a tip jar on a counter and was told that wasn't really kind of on brand. To be clear, a former executive did say to us that as far as they knew, tip jars were permitted in the spaces. But there were bigger problems. One former wing executive told Sophie that some staff seemed to think that they were coming to work for a non-profit. They told her that the executive team had to be wary of being clear that what the wing actually was, was a company that, though it had ambitious social aims, was also under fierce pressure from investors to grow quickly. It turned out 
working at the wing was much like working anywhere else, except worse, because you'd been told it would be better, Sophie said. As criticism mounted, Gelman wrote an article in Fast Company magazine in February of 2020, admitting to her and her co-founders blind spots, as she put it, as white cis women saying that they had prioritised business growth over cultural growth. She wrote, The hardest part was that the failures led us to inadvertently replicate some of the very social hierarchies that we'd set out to dismantle. And then the reports of mistreatment and racist abuse started to leak out. Treatment of staff who were often in the spaces predominantly or at least a significant number of people of colour, women of colour working as sort of frontline staff, being treated very badly by membership. And those stories sort of started to come out. And I think then the kind of climax of that was a big New York Times magazine piece. In an article by the reporter Amanda Hess, published in the New York Times, 26 then-current and former employees of The Wing described abuse and mistreatment. They said that they had endured casual racism from Wing members who were predominantly white. They described an unstable work environment, punishingly long hours and low pay. One woman said, the drive for perfection created a culture of fear and secrecy. And these reports, coupled with the arrival of the global pandemic, saw the company go into freefall. A majority of its staff were let go. And for those staff, the wing announced two months severance pay and an employee relief fund, which was partly funded by the CEOs themselves, to which staffers could apply for one-off payments of $500. And then when the Black Lives Matter movement resurged in the wake of the murder of George Floyd, the wing issued a statement of support and then announced a donation of $200,000 to various funds. But that provoked a lot of anger from staff who were wondering at the company's ability to grandstand on systemic racism when the staff felt that they hadn't even dealt with the alleged racism within their own company. And then on the 10th of June, the Wing's social media feeds went silent. And as Sophie says, for a company who would use social media to broadcast an aspirational, progressive lifestyle to which they were basically selling access, perhaps there was just now simply no point in posting. There was nothing to sell, and so there was nothing to say. The next day, Audrey Gelman stepped down. For anyone following this world on social media, it was undisputedly a moment. The decision is the right thing for the business and the best way to bring the wing along into a long overdue era of change, she wrote to colleagues. While this was all happening, staffers who were furious at their treatment formed a group called Flew the Coop, sharing their stories on Instagram and organising a digital walkout. And so the key question at this moment for the wing and for Audrey Gelman was this. How can you have this obviously noble, uplifting, empowering, mission-driven thing, but also make money? And the answer, it seemed, is you probably can't without compromising that mission. Because in the Wings case, according to its own aims, if this wasn't a place for all women, then it had already failed at its very core. And that failure because of the nature of this new brand of millennial marketing that Audrey had been so adept at, to be present, visible, to share something of herself on social media. That failure became Audrey's personal failure. 
Audrey Gelman, the archetypal wing woman whose company was marketed as an extension of her own values and her own image, was brought down as soon as that image cracked. I think after she resigned, there was this sense of almost a sort of disappearance. And I spoke to a lot of, you know, people who knew her or other founders of other kind of companies or her friend, Sharmadine Reed, who, who kind of all gave the sense of, I guess, like sort of bafflement and, and consternation, I guess, at the idea that a, a, a woman messes up in a public way or a company, you know, something it goes wrong. It's, she, you know, Audrey Gellman didn't commit a crime, but but it was as though the punishment was had to be fairly total. She She had to sort of disappear and not be sort of seen or heard from. As it was, she then did emerge a few months later on to Instagram, appropriately enough, given that was the sort of, I guess, platform where a lot of the wing has played out, to write a very, very long apology to Flew the Coop, the campaign group, which she then obviously shared with all her followers as well, and which was then sort of picked up and reported on by various media outlets. And it was a you know a very long and very self sort of flagellating, hugely detailed apology, really kind of itemizing every possible kind of personal and corporate failure that she'd made, and taking responsibility for it. And I guess the first you know there are, there are lots of things to say about that, but the, the the one that struck me was that it's it's not something I'd really ever read someone do before, or certainly not that you would um, ever see a, a, a male founder do. I guess. And this is an important point. Very few male founders have ever been expected to publicly flagellate themselves in the way that Audrey Gelman was expected to. Did you ever see Adam Newman, the founder of WeWork, have to apologise so publicly? Take the argument put forward by Sarah Mauskopf, co-founder and co-CEO of the childcare platform Winnie, who wrote an article headlined The Inevitable Takedown of the Female CEO. She said... That, of course, while there is no excuse for racist or poor treatment of staff, women founders tended to come under particular and unjust pressures, both aesthetic and ethical. Given, I suppose, that such a tiny fraction of companies have women as leaders at all, 5% of public corporations in the US and in the UK just 5 out of the FTSE 100 companies have female CEOs. This felt like a public stoning. Mousekopf wrote... The way we're targeting female founders and CEOs is doing nothing to encourage gender equality. In a statement to Sophie and to Tortoise, The Wing said, We're encouraged to hear of Audrey's time of reflection and growth. They posted their own apology on Instagram a couple of days later. We can't begin to rebuild without an apology to you, our members, employees and community, they wrote. The reality is, we're still figuring things out. Inclusivity must be a top priority and there must be a commitment to diversity, inclusion and anti-racism. I think sort of one of the ways that Instagram, you know, there's a sort of an example that has kept coming up in a slightly absurd way um, of the role Instagram has played in, the, in, in a company like The Wing, which was, I think it was in the original New York Times expose where there was an anecdote about Audrey Gelman coming down from sort of on high in HQ to, to come and wash some dishes in one of The Wing spaces, kitchens. The idea being it was a kind of sort of mucking in with the staff and, you know, the CEOs sort of taking on some of the uh, getting their hands dirty. And this was quickly documented and put on on Instagram and caused a certain amount of like irritation, I think, among employees. I happened to talk to one of the employees that was there and who sort of said how it kind of did seem to sum up something about the wing that it was 
supposed to be part of this sort of whole work initiative where everyone in senior levels was sort of experiencing all different aspects of working at the wing but really she came down and she washed a dish and they took a picture and that was it as another female fan had put it to me who was very irritated by this anecdote Sarah Malscott who's the CEO of Winnie she was saying how what CEO goes and washes dishes all the time like why would we ever expect that of a you know a man who is a CEO of a, of a company and it's, it's this idea that as a, a woman you're going to be kind of she's found it sort of peculiarly sexist um, example I suppose of of someone being criticized for doing something symbolically which of course leaders and CEOs and anyone does all the time and you know you using a platform like Instagram because of course that's the way the world works now and everyone has to use platforms like Instagram to the best of their ability and I guess oh, you know on that sense it's like you know Instagram's sort of working for and against you on all levels it's like you have to do this stuff to fulfill it but it's also exposing the hypocrisy at the heart of something and yet at the same time how much risk there was in a way of associated with that role that she was having to play. This reckoning didn't just come for Audrey Gelman this summer. There was a line of female CEOs leaving their jobs amid accusations of toxic or racist cultures in their workplaces. The Black Lives Matter movement helped many people find a voice, and in many cases, those voices broke through the facade. Women like Christine Barberich at Refinery29, a website for young women, Yale Afalo at Reformation, a sustainable clothing brand, Leandra Medine at Man Repeller, a fashion website. Accusations of racism also hit Glossier, the billion-dollar makeup company, again, a company firmly rooted in the world of Insta-Gen Z aesthetics. One magazine called it the Girl Boss Reckoning. And you might, by this point, be wondering that perhaps at the heart of all of this, the wing is an illustration of the fact that capitalism and feminism, maybe they're just incompatible. Principles of private companies driven by investor interests do not and cannot align with feminist and intersectional priorities. I'm not so sure of that yet, but I do think that the wing teaches us some very important and very current lessons about young women in power. First, it is, of course, that we continue to hold them to impossibly high standards. This can be true, of course, while we can also acknowledge that the experiences of the women of colour working at the wing are valid and that, as Audrey Gelman herself acknowledged, for the way that they were allowed to be treated, there should be serious consequences. But it's also a cautionary tale about myth-making. It reveals the very particular poison that brews when a mission exists only online and fails to translate into meaningfully different working practices, like proper pay, or a healthy working environment, or a sense of a real community. In that sense, the pinkwashing was always going to be found out. Because when you think back, of course the merch was ridiculous. Of course it was crass. Can branded socks ever do it for the sisterhood? What changed along the way was that at the height of the Black Lives Matter movement, a demand for transparency and authenticity and integrity really cut through. The wing suddenly appeared totally nonsensical. The philosophical impossibility at its heart was finally exposed. And with it, the promise of a feminist business empire telling women that it could do things differently crumbled on the very social media timeline that launched it. Thanks for listening this week. This podcast was brilliantly reported by Sophie Elmhurst, who has written a definitive essay on The Wing, which is available in the Tortoise app. 
It was produced by Matt Russell and sound design was by Tom Kinsella. In Tortoise this week, we'll be publishing a range of reporting on corporate feminism and the girl boss reckoning, with writers including Shirin Kale, Yomi Adegake and Elle Hunt contributing. You can download the Tortoise app for 30 days for free by going to tortoisemedia.com forward slash trial. Thank you, and I'll see you next week.